Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle, and I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and the founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. For season three, we are sitting down with some of the most successful founders to better understand what entrepreneurship means to them, the operational processes they have employed on their startup journey, and what lessons they've learned along the way. This episode was recorded in October, just before Babylon listed on the New York Stock Exchange. We saved it for January, as often people are going on a bit of a health kick. So we're delighted to be joined by the UK's most prominent healthcare entrepreneur, Ali Parser, the founder and CEO of Babylon. Ali started out in banking before then founding Circle, which was Europe's largest partnership of clinicians. And then in 2013, Ali founded Babylon, which is on a mission to put an accessible and affordable health service in the hands of every person on earth. Massive mission, public company, healthcare unicorn. Let's find out how he did it. Hi, Ali. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Riding Unicorns. Thank you for having me. So, Ali, for season three, we are interviewing exceptional founders and entrepreneurs, and we want to ask every guest, what does entrepreneurship really mean to you? I think entrepreneurship is a process of creativity. It's creating something new. It's no different than being an artist, a chef, anything that is creative. And that process of creativity, in my view, sits at the core of it. So if I started a burger shop, which is just copy somebody else's uh, business and create something simple, is that entrepreneurship? I don't know. It's, It's not innovative. And there is, for me at least, If you want to create something new, then the operative word is new. It needs to be something that is additive to the society in which we work. Super interesting hearing hearing everyone's different takes on what entrepreneurship means. Now, Ali, you've had a varied background, starting off with a, a PhD in physics, and then you had a stint in banking. And then you obviously went on to, to start Circle, which was enormously successful, and, and now Babylon. What was it after your stint in banking that kind of made you think that that healthcare is what you want to spend the next couple of decades focused on? So I think those are two different questions. I left banking and then after a period of time, I decided to do healthcare. And the reason I left banking is not because of all these fashionable ways of saying bad things about bankers and financiers. I think they do an incredibly important job of connecting those who have money with those who need money. My issue was I wasn't very good at getting excited about projects, doing something that is time-defined, and then you move on and you do something else. I come from a family of builders. My father was a civil engineer. My mother was a drew detailed maps. And I love this process of building something. So for me, leaving banking was about leaving a project-based career to move into something where you can build. Then getting into healthcare, frankly, was entirely by chance. As I got out of banking, I kind of did a series of knee surgeries. I used to do a lot of sports and I had a sustained problem with my knees, which I thought I would fix, which actually I damaged by doing the surgeries. I don't recommend it to anybody. And I saw the hospital that did my surgery. And I thought, if that's the best private hospitals that we have, surely we could do better than this. And from that came Circle, which is how can you redefine what a hospital should be? How can you bring the word hospitality back into the hospital? 
How can you make it run owned by the professionals who manage it and run it in the same way that an investment bank, a venture capital firm is co-owned by its professionals. We thought that the professionals who work in hospitals should co-own it too, to have a view of their, their destiny and how they serve their clients. And that was the genesis for reinventing what a hospital could be. And so then after Circle, you founded Babylon. And so what did you do in the first year of founding Babylon? And what foundations did you put into place that you look back on now and go, I'm so glad we got that right from the start and that gave us the platform to where we are today? The first thing that I did in Babylon, of course, being an engineer, a physicist or a, an investment banker, I wrote them a model. I wrote a very detailed model just to try and figure out whether we get this right or not, or how does it financially make sense? I'm not a believer that you could buy a pair of jeans for $20 and sell it for $10 forever and, and get customers. So I wanted to make sure that it makes economic sense to do what we wanted to do. And our mission was a very important one. I mean, we created Babylon to say, can you do with healthcare what Google did with information? Can you use technology to make it accessible, affordable to every human being on earth? And that means the economics of it, the affordability part becomes a really important thing. So, so I spent a lot of time in the first uh, month or two just working on the financial model just on my own. And then the second document I remember was a document that still exists. It's on our website. It's called We Are Babylon. It was about our culture. And its first page said that our public mission is to make healthcare accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of every human, every person on earth. But our private, our secret mission is to do so while not being jerks, to create a humane organization that is incredibly well managed, where it values the people who work in it. So they are enjoy their work and they can be their best. You and I both know that those two are not the same. You can be a highly successful company, a dreadful place to work. You can be a highly successful individual and dreadful person. And we wanted to create an organization in which we love to be part of and we can be proud of. And I am delighted to say that one thing I hear time after time from Babylonians who left years ago to the Babylonians who are with us now, that is one of the most interesting, thought-provoking, stimulating, but also humane places they ever worked. And that's worth a lot. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And culture is something that perhaps we'll touch in on again later on, but super important. And uh, amazing to hear the bold ambitions that you had. And you know, I'm sure you're not alone in having these bold ambitions for healthcare, although I think you've been more successful than most in your attempts to execute on those ambitions. But working in healthcare is notoriously difficult and slow moving and bureaucratic and all these other things. Can you point to any moments where you've really seen that, the, the difficulty with working in healthcare and has that caused you problems along the way? Yes. I mean, look, healthcare is one of the world's largest industries, if not the largest, it's a $10 trillion sector. That means $10 trillion of salaries, vested interests, you name it, right? And the people who receive that in almost every society are amongst the most influential, powerful, and they deal with something that the society values, which is the human health, right? Therefore, the society listens to them. And like any other sector, they don't want to be disrupted. They don't want to change uh, some, right? There's no such thing as the entire thing, but there is a group that does it. 
So you have to deal with it, right? I mean, and every time somebody tells me, look, it's really hard to sell to the NHS, I always say, well, try selling to Tesco, right? Not that much easier, right? I mean, the reality is there's nothing to be gained by focusing on the negative of anything, right? I mean, one of the the document I told you about, We Are Babylon, it says that our values are uh, dream big, build fast, and be brilliant. And then the way we behave matters. And we have six behaviors in Babylon that we really promote. And one of them is positivity. It is what it is. There's no point in moaning, complaining. Just figure out how to deal with it, right? I mean, I, I think negativity about anything sucks the life out of you. I just, I mean, better in your personal life, having negative people around you or in your business life. And, and saying that something is hard, it is what it is, right? And, and also think about it. The harder it is, the less people will try to do it. And therefore, in a way, it makes it easier because you have less competition. You said something else, which I thought was really interesting, Hector, and you said that a lot of people have big ambitions in healthcare. One of my challenges is actually most people have very small ambitions. They want to kind of re-engineer a little part. They want to kind of fix a tiny piece of the puzzle. And often we blame the entrepreneurs to say that, that they don't have enough ambitions. I think your industry, your sector, investors, financiers need to also think about their part in this, right? You know how we finance companies. We finance companies by saying, give me an idea and I give you seed money. You got 18 months to build a product, I give you VC money. You got another 18 months to get to revenue so that we can access growth capital. At least that's how it used to be. Nowadays, there is so much money that anything can more easily get financed. But that 18 months period or one year period, 12 to 18 months period, really took away ambition. Because what can you build in 18 months? What big problem can you solve in 18 months? And one of the biggest innovations in my view about Babylon, and one of the things that we got super lucky with, is that we almost never got early stage money or VC money. We went almost directly to growth capital to people with very long-term view, to say that, look, if you want to do something ambitious and long-term, it takes time and it takes money. And I remember on my very early pitches, it's not as if I came up with it, at the very early pitches, I knocked on the door of a few VCs and some of the most famous VCs in UK, who you and I know and think very highly of, wouldn't invest in Babylon at four, five, seven million dollar valuation, right? I mean, they would have made a hundred times their money now, right? But the reason they wouldn't have is because they said it's too ambitious. And that was the biggest challenge, right? Too ambitious. And I think we need to, all of us, from entrepreneurs to financiers, remember that. That's fascinating. That's a really good observation. I think perhaps risk profiles have changed a little bit amongst investors over the last few years as we're forced to compete on the deals that could you know, return our funds. And I suppose you're in the fortunate position where you had a proven track record, you had built a successful business in healthcare. So people were perhaps prepared to take that punt more than they would be with other founders. It's a good point. But as you and I both know, there's no correlation necessarily, if you've built before or not. Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, they were all first time founders, right? I mean, as you know. And they all did phenomenally well, far, far better than 
Definitely. And and things have become better and the industry has learned and the community of financiers today versus when we started Babylon a good part of a decade ago, almost seven, eight years ago. So Ali, I've, I've got so many questions, but one question I want to ask really was around, you're very good at articulating identity and culture and vision and those types of things. I imagine you're quite good at selling as well. What what do you think really separates you as a founder and what gives you an edge? Any traits or habits that you think really set you apart and mean that you are the best person to build a company like Babylon? I I honestly think I was super lucky. I, I'm not sure I'm any better than anybody else to do it. I mean, look, some of the smartest people I do, I know are in great jobs. They are physicists, they are management consultants, they are bankers, right? I think there is something about an entrepreneur that it's not necessarily about how articulate you are, how passionate you are, how bright you are, none of that. All of that is everywhere. I think there is maybe a little bit about going back to where we started, trying to be a creator, right? I think in the same way that an artist finds it very hard to work for somebody else, they want to create something. And I just think entrepreneurs, they usually want to create something. Frankly, most entrepreneurs I know don't care about how much money they make. And uh, I do some personal investing. And the thing that switches me uh, off is when there is a pitch that has got an exit page on it, or here is how we're going to exit. And I just think, if you're already thinking about that, and the reason is that it is so hard. You guys know because you've setting up your set up your own uh, funds and stuff you know how hard it is it's so hard to build something and you get so many setbacks that if you do it for money at some stage you turn back and say you know what i'm not going to make enough money on this so let me go do something more safe more secure you do it because you love to create and i think that your customers can see that in you and you have to be authentic you have to believe that what you're going to do is going to be amazing and then if you can communicate that to your customers, the customers can see that too. And that's what they're buying. They're buying your ability to create for them what they need, as opposed to your ability to speak nicely. It's great insight. And moving on slightly. So, I mean, healthcare for me is one of the most exciting areas. And we, we invest in a fair bit as episode one as a fund. Probably pairs with education as being kind of one of the sectors that's the largest and least disrupted sectors still sort of ready to be taken do you have a vision of what that future looks like for healthcare and you touched on it briefly at the at the start but it didn't go into any detail and I wonder what that vision is and and where Babylon fits into it I think that like any other industry that requires re-engineering you can't just re-engineer a tiny part of it I don't know if there is a mice in a house. There is never one mice. The whole house is infected, right? So you need to clean up the entire thing. So if you look at the best companies out there, look at Amazon. What they did was they didn't come in and say, I'm going to re-engineer a small part of retail. They said, I'm going to re-engineer every touch point in retail. I just have to start somewhere. But I'm going to re-engineer the whole thing, right? And that's what we're trying to do in Babylon. I don't believe the, that if people who take a very small piece and say, I'm going to just do that, the problem is that you will have to touch other pieces. And then it doesn't really matter how well you do your piece. People come back 
and say, what happens to the rest? I need someone. Now, unless you're a very niche therapeutic company or a very niche episodic business, that, that kind of work. Time matter, as you know, in our industry, right? If your niche, your valuation will be niche. The amount of capital you can attract will be, unless the niche is big. So I'm a big believer in, it doesn't matter what you do, do it brilliantly. And that's, that's what we call in Babylon, right? One of our values is be brilliant. Sure. And, and just extending that a little bit. So at the moment, I mean, lots of our listeners will obviously know Babylon, will have used Babylon, hopefully had a great experience on Babylon. At the moment, it's kind of, if I'm right, it's focused on the sort of GP end of healthcare. Do, do you see it going into the more sort of hospital side of things or the infrastructure side of healthcare and any more than it already is? Yes. We will never run hospitals, but so much of what happens in a hospital should not happen in the hospital. And I see a situation, in it like any other industry, what is very complex and central will eventually become simplif- simplified and local and eventually personal. And that movement from complex care hospitals to clinics, from clinics to physical clinics to virtual consultation, from virtual consultation with the doctor to a talk to a care assistant who is not clinician, that is clinically supervised. And then what that chat and conversation is to be automated, to be done by machine, that movement will happen across all of healthcare, right? Uh, bit by bit. How long would it take for me to be really accurately, rather than just as a point of information, talk to a machine to diagnose me, I don't know. How long would it take for me to be able to be monitored 24-7 with my with a device that I'm wearing so that all my body data can be analyzed in real time in the same way that it's happening with your car? I don't know. But I think if you look at what happened to your car is what is going to happen to your body, or at least that's our vision. 20 years ago, I used to drive my car until it broke down. I took it to a mechanic who fixed it. Who knew how they fixed it? They didn't. Sometimes they did a bit of guesswork. And then I drove it until it broke down again, right? Cars don't break down anymore. And the reason for that is we buried so many sensors in these cars that we can be pre-worn when nothing's gone wrong so we can fix it ahead of time. And that is what I can see the future of healthcare being. It's all going to be about taking data, analyzing data, taking insight in real time and intervening ahead of time to keep people healthy rather than wait for them to get sick and then spend money on emergencies and crises. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to, to, to look at it. You're publicly quite a big proponent of more private sector involvement within the NHS. So how do you see that working and how can something like Babylon help the NHS to become more preventative rather than reactive? So I knew Jeremy Haywood a little bit. And his wife has written a wonderful tribute book to him, a biography of his time. And in it, there are passages about how the Labour government during the period of Tony Blair introduced some cautious choices in NHS or in government as a whole. And one of them was, we can choose our own GP. The other one was, if we have cancer and we're not being seen, I think it was within four, five, six months, something like this, then we have the choice to go to another hospital. And there was huge debate when you read the book or when you read Tony Blair's book or 
or Mandelson's book about these subjects, right? And look at it now. I mean, we laugh at those things. The fact that if I had a bad GP, I had to stay with it forever and I had no choice until I choose to leave my room. Or if I had a bad hospital, I had no choice to go to anywhere else. I think this question of my hospital has to be owned by the government or by the private sector, it's just irrelevant, right? You look at Germany. Like Germany has more private hospitals than it has public hospitals and it has more beds than it has that we do, and, and the Germans are happier with their health system. The French have huge private involvement in their healthcare. Everybody always looks at America and says, look at what a disaster that is for 15, 20% of the people. Uh, of course, for the top 20, 30% is amazing, by the way, right? Healthcare in the United States. And in the middle is kind of like us, but for the bottom top is dreadful. But, but they don't say, look at Germany, look at France, look at Switzerland, right? Look at Nordic countries, Scandinavia. I think that debate is a false debate, personally. I think that we should attract talent, wherever they are, into solving our problems in our society. And limiting it to private or public is nonsense. In the same way that if we do it the other way around, if we insist that everything should be private, why? There is nothing that if something is privately owned makes it inherently better than if it's very well managed publicly. Yeah, I have to say the thing that really touch me with what you just said is the stuff about creating a sort of preventative healthcare system. So, so something I'm pretty interested in is wearables and the sort of movement towards quantified self where you're kind of, we're all creating so much data about ourselves now, whether that's through our Apple Watch with heart rates and, you know, breathing rates and oxygen levels in us. And we're also recording some of us, what we eat and how much we exercise and meditate, all these things. And you can even tap into things like how many meetings you're have a day, having a day and how many emails you're sending a day and what time you finish and that kind of thing. Is there a route where Babylon could start to grab onto all of this data and build a kind of big data picture of your customers if they, if they chose to? We're already doing that. That is our next big frontier. We've just already put all of our data, and I think we're one of the first healthcare companies, to the best of my knowledge, worldwide who's done that connected all of the data we have on our page members and, and more onto a graph database, a health graph of every individual. We're building on that massively, as you may have noticed in, the, uh, in our forthcoming IPO, one of the largest investors was Palantir. We've already started working on using their very good platform to build a very significant application for data and AI on top of it for healthcare, but you put your finger on something that is super important to us, to how we take billions of data points we have and make sense of them, and then can intelligently use them. Look, in my view, very few people should die of cancer if it's been caught very early. Most stage one cancers are highly treatable, most stage four cancers are a challenge, right? The only difference between a stage one and a stage four is when you catch it, that's it, if you let it grow. Most cancers are now leaving enough signs out there for us to be able to catch it early. It's just that nobody's looking. And that's just tragic. It's just tragic. There's more attention going into your car than it's going into your body. Can you imagine if we did with our airplanes what we do with our human body. Let it crash and then go fix it. We wouldn't even do that. 
And yet when it comes to what we do, that's exactly our approach to healthcare. Let it crash and then we'll try and fix it. It's a really important way to think about it. Back to sort of the babble on the operational side. I mean, you've been very successful in fundraising. You've raised a couple of what we would term as mega rounds. Your IPO is upcoming. That must be a lot of work and effort. But what is it like putting together a mega round? And what tips do you have for other founders when it comes to fundraising? My biggest tip to founders when it comes to fundraising is raise as little as you possibly can get away with that you need. There is a huge discipline in not having loads of money. The best example that we all tragically now talk about is WeWork. I mean, was WeWork really a bad business or all these things happened because uh, the entrepreneurs and the management team were as bad as everybody tries to make them to be? Or was it that they were just given far too much money and were asked to grow far too fast, right? And therefore they did things that they wouldn't have done earlier. So I, I don't know them. I don't know nothing. I'm just asking. So I I just think that the most important question for an entrepreneur is what is the optimal amount of money they need and what the source of that money should be in order to grow their business. And you're right, we raised a lot of money, but if you compare it to our sector, at the time we were raising the money, for the ambition we had and the size of the growth we demonstrated, it's actually has not been among the largest amounts, right? People have raised a lot more than us and didn't go as far or raised a lot more, a lot faster than us. I mean, look, let me just put this in perspective. Until 2019, we were created in 2013. For the first six years, we had only raised about $60, $70 million, $80 million, something like that, in two rounds only, or A, B rounds. Our C round, yes, it was a big round. It was a few hundred million dollars, but we were already five, six years old. And on the back of that C round, we went all the way, almost till now, we've done a couple of debt deals since, but almost till now, where we will do a few hundred million dollars of revenue this year, right? 300 something million dollars of revenue this year, and a lock, of course, booked for next year. So return on what we people have put into us. I mean, if you look at our next year revenue and how much we raised so far, XDIPO, I means one-time revenue, which is not a lot of money. So if you're trading at five, six, seven, ten times revenue, then people have made five, six, seven times their money. Yeah, I think there's this huge anxiety around not raising enough money. Founders thinking we're going to run out of money because... You know, although our financial model says that we're going to be at a point where we don't need to raise more money or we'll very easily be able to raise more money once we're once we have these levels of traction. I think there's just a massive anxiety around what if things don't go to plan? What if we have the opportunity to raise money now? What if we don't in 12 months time, in 18 months time? And so that's what pushes them to raise more than they need. I don't believe in that personally. I mean, different people have different views. I have never seen that there has ever been a problem raising money if you have a good idea and the business is working well. And if the business is not working well and you can't raise money, that basically is telling you you shouldn't waste your time if other people are not prepared to waste their money. It's actually a good discipline to see what happens there. And also the reality is, and again, not picking on Paul WeWork, the reality is it doesn't really matter how much money you use. If you're not managing it right, that money will run out anyways, and then you have to raise another chunk of money, right? I mean, so 
look, in my previous business, I had raised five, six hundred million dollars, which at the time was a ginormous amount of money in 2005 time from Lehman Brothers and RBC to build a chain of hospitals ahead of time. So I thought I did that. Now, they did a lot of due diligence on me. Of course, I didn't do any due diligence on them, and they're all gone now, right? That's, that's, you know. But they all went bust. And I had to, from 2007, 2008 to 2010, 12, raise about $280, $258 million in the middle of financial crisis. I mean, you guys, I don't know if you remember, you couldn't raise $2 million at that time. The markets were shut, right? And we raised what was... At the time, the largest investments in any private sector company, I think, in the UK. So there is always money to come. And by the way, it's often financiers who tell you you need to raise. You say entrepreneurs, I need to kind of stand for my fellow entrepreneurs and defend them a bit. It's often financiers who tell them you need to raise more because they see something, they want to own more of it, da, da, da. Uh, I was talking to a wonderful entrepreneur the other day who, quite rightly, was saying that, look, I have uh, now been left with very small amount of my company, single-digit percentage points, right? And I have not raised a lot of money, and I need to raise a lot more. And what's my incentive? I can go become a CEO somewhere and get that same percentage, right? And his only incentive, quite rightly, and I did this with Circle, where I stayed on for a very long time, even though my economic interest in was his commitment to his shareholders and his staff. And I was encouraging him that, look, it's not just about how much you want. It's also a commitment you made. But he really, when you look at it, he was treated really badly by how much of his ownership was taken away just because early on he wanted to take more money than he should have when he didn't have track record. And that money comes at an expense. Very interesting insight there on fundraising. And I think particularly the early rounds, it's important to think about how much you're giving away because that can often be the time where the, the most gets taken away and maybe when you don't need to. So you, you touched on a couple of moments there where you, you had to deal with very difficult things, whether it be around fundraising. All founders go through good days and bad days. When you have a bad day, you get that email that kind of derails what you were planning to do that day. What do you turn to? Is there someone you speak to or is, do you have a habit that you have for picking yourself up and retaining that positive energy that you have? Yeah, my advantage is my age. I'm in my 50s. I've been around when my company had two more weeks of money left at some stage, not Babylon previously. Even in Babylon, I had really dark, tough days. Like one of my very early investors was supposed to like help with lots of things. They didn't. They took the very first stage, as you say, they took a lot of the company and then put their hands back and said, good luck, right? And there were times the company would run out of money and these guys would say, it doesn't matter. I know that you will figure out a way of uh, getting it done. So I had my share of excellent investors and my shares of people I wouldn't touch with a barge pole anymore, right? And I had great employees and sometimes I got unlucky to have not such great employees. I had fantastic customers and sometimes I had really bad things. The thing to do is just forget about it. Know that nothing that is bad is ever as bad as it seems. Nothing that is good is ever as good as it seems. You just pass it on. I mean, I just told you about a shareholder, right? Because it's public, I can tell you. This particular shareholder, because they would not pay for anything, 
we took options on them because I had to pay for their shares, right? So, okay, I pay it now if you don't want to pay. But then if things go right, I will buy a percentage of your shares. Of course, things went right. Just because they wouldn't spend a few hundred thousand pounds, they lose hundred million pounds, right? Or dollars or whatever it is, right? So I went to buy it back from them, say, okay, I'm exercising. And they said, sorry, I'm not going to give it to you. It's all in court. And we went to court. But I just didn't even show up at the court. I just passed it on to my lawyers, said, look, it is what it is. Just deal with it. If we win, we win. And everybody could see that we're going to win. It's just nonsense. I mean, the judge actually, even in summary trial, threw it out because it was just nonsense. They were just being greedy and they, they made so much money, they were just being more greedy. But my point is, even at something like this, I didn't let it bother me, didn't upset me in any shape or form. And I think super important. And why do I use this example? Because you can't really get bigger than this, right? Somebody's taking a big chunk of everything you work for just away from you, right? So you could say, ah, my shares are gone, right? I mean, why else? <laughs> like, and, and, you know, it'll kind of figure itself out. If you're right, you will win at the run. And if you were wrong and you lose in anything, probably that was the right result anyways, right? That's really interesting. And actually also interesting that we, we have quite a lot of founders on the show now and Definitely optimism is a common feature between most of the entrepreneurs that we speak to. Quite interesting to see that. So sort of touching on a similar topic, but a little bit different. Can you think of any times where you've had to make really hard strategic decisions in the face of the unknown where you really didn't know for sure whether it was the right decision? Maybe it was a pivot. Maybe it was hiring someone, firing someone whatever it is, decisions that you thought were really hard and you didn't know. And what was your process for sort of making those decisions? Of course, you make those decisions at the littlest stage almost every day. They're not hard strategic decisions, as you said. And some decisions are really hard and are really strategic. And I always think about it in two, kind of my decision tree is, is this a decision that if I make, I cannot go back from? Or is this decision that if I make, and it's not right, who cares? We just come back, right? And vast majority of decisions you find is in the second category. And when they're in the second category, you shouldn't really spend far too much time on them. It's actually better to experiment with it and see whether how it goes, right? Uh, because if you have to spend a lot of time on it, it's because you're simulating the future and how it can go. You're better off to spend a little bit of time, effort, money, just do it in a very scrappy way and see whether it works or not. Here is what we did in the last year alone, right? Almost, right? A year ago this time, we had zero value-based care revenue, give or take, in the United States. Today, we are amongst the largest value-based care providers outside being owned by an insurance company or a hospital group, independent, ourselves, in the U.S. We, so at the choice of do you go to the U.S., do you do value-based care, do you do that digitally first? Nobody has ever done this before. There's no European or outside European country that I know of that has broken into the U.S. healthcare system and has won, let alone has established itself in India. Uh, a year ago, we changed our entire leadership team, give or take. Everywhere is new, from the president of Google Cloud who joined us to the CEO of uh, Amazon's strategic businesses to the SVP of data and AI of Expedia, to one of the leaders of value-based care in United Health, very different cultures, very different places. In one year, actually in a few months, we re-engineered our entire leadership. Huge decision. It could totally go wrong. In the middle of the COVID, 
And you need to make those decisions because you think, look, if it's all gone wrong, I just like change them and then fix them. The worst decision to make is not to make a decision. And the worst decision we made in Babylon was when we got scared years earlier when we should have gone to the U.S. and didn't. We said, ah, all the reasons I told you, right? Nobody has ever broken into the U.S. market. Nah, nah. Eventually we said, well, nobody has ever digitized healthcare. Nobody has ever, you know, so what, right? Somebody's got to do it. Yeah, there's definitely a theme developing amongst our guests about the speed of decision making. And if you get 96 out of 100 right, you're, do- you're sort of doing something right. James, that is right. Sorry, James, not that you, what you're saying. It's just that thinking. I, I was lucky enough to meet Soros once. And he said something that stuck with me. And it was something like, I have to make decisions, trading decisions, sometimes significant, all the time. And at best, I get 55% of them right. And that has made me one of the richest people in the world. I, I think people put the standard of the decisions they make that has got to be right really high. I'm so sorry to contradict you on this one. But I think 95% is an unrealistic number. The realistic number is get 50%, 55%, right? It's like going to a casino. I don't gamble, but casinos are some of the richest organizations in the world just because they get a 2% advantage over their players, right? If somebody's dumb enough to go and play, they kind of, the stats are against them, right? Because eventually they will always lose. I think you've just made a lot of entrepreneurs very happy, Ali. So well done. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, look, there's been some amazing stuff in there about decision-making, identity, culture, creativity, disruption, vision, the list goes on. So thank you so much, Ali. We'd like to end with our dinner party guest game. So if you were to have dinner with three people, it could be absolutely anyone, who would they be for you? That's a tough one. And I'm going to answer it truthfully rather than fashionably and come up with some big names that everybody wants to have a dinner with. I would love to have it with people who I have zero idea about their lives and who they are and what they do and, and their lives to be as different as mine. I hate it when we go to these dinners where everybody is the same, we eat the same food, da, da, da. Some of the best dinners I had and it's when I've been traveling, sitting in a tent with a community that had never even can imagine their lives, right? I think human beings are wonderful, wonderful, wherever they are. They're amazing and they all have the same desires, the same needs, the same dreams. They just have different opportunities and different circumstances. So rather than having a a dinner with somebody famous, I love to have a dinner with a peasant in Afghanistan uh, in an environment I've never been, or somebody in Amazon that has a life that I have never can imagine and learn. Learning is is the funnest thing anybody can do. And I'm a sucker for learning. So having dinner with somebody who I can listen to would be amazing. I think that's a, a really lovely answer and a refreshing answer and, and an original answer as well, which you'll be pleased to hear. Another interesting trend is that the unicorn founders are getting lots of original answers on dinner party guest game. Maybe correlation, not causation, I'm sure, but interesting to say. <laughs> Yeah, the, the unicorn founders pick people that either don't exist or unknowns or people we've never heard of, whereas the, the early founders pick unicorn founders. <laughs> so there's something about your, your life perspective and adult development there about when you get to that point, you want to, to go back and, and learn from people at the start of their journey. 
Thank you, Ali. We've absolutely loved it. Thanks for coming on Riding Unicorns and telling us your your journey with all, all the way up to and including Babylon. It's been great. And there's lots of stuff in there that our audience will really love. So thank you. I'm incredibly honoured that you thought of us and thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. I hope you were able to take away many learnings from this episode. Thankfully, we have plenty more amazing guests and insightful conversations coming your way every week, every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe to Riding Unicorns on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. If you're interested in supporting the show, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RidingUnicorns underscore and follow us on LinkedIn as well by searching Riding Unicorns. See you next time.